Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Where you go with a head like that? Hmm? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible and nothing is what it seems. The world of Labyrinth. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. This is episode 48. We will be discussing Labyrinth. I'm your host, Jimbo, and so shockingly, for two weeks in a row... Oh man, the co-host, Terrence. Terrence is back in the house. So, Terrence, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a question here before we get started. You're Uh-oh. totally unprepared for this, like normal, so... As usual. I want to... Terrence, give me your favorite puppet and muppet uh, of all time. So, puppet just in general of like... You like, know, just any puppet and the muppet. Uh, I really enjoy the the uh, sort of design and um, you only get of, one though. Yes, that's on okay. the main character of Dark Crystal. And his name was? I don't remember. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> he is uh, in rare form today, fellas. He's he's absolutely. ready to go. Um, now I would say my favorite. Jen? Is he talking about Jen? Jen, yeah. Okay. Uh, my favorite Muppet. Uh, man, there's so many. They're all so endearing. Um, Man, I'll just go with classic Kermit, man. Kermit, like, all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to say my mean? favorite, my favorite puppet is probably Yoda, uh, oh, and yeah, and yeah. probably close second to that is Jabba the Hutt because there was like six puppeteers in That's that guy. True. Yeah. And my favorite Muppet 
Um, you know, you, you got to go with uh, Kermit, uh, even though that little shrimp they have now, I can't think of his name. He's oh, hilarious yeah. <laughs> or lots or whatever he is. He's funny. So Terrence, before we dive into this movie, that is Labyrinth. Um, let's go ahead and throw out some information. Um, next week we will be covering Ghostbusters um, yeah. since it's close to Halloween. Figure we throw that out there, and then we will be having a Halloween special episode that uh, on Halloween night where we'll be doing the original Night of the Living Dead. Now we are going to be on Hillbilly Horror Stories, and we will be doing a little uh, shortened version of the Night of the Living Dead, which we've already recorded and sent off to Jerry at Hillbilly Horror Stories. So we will be on their special Halloween episode once again this year, which we are greatly thankful for. Uh, so thanks, Jerry and Tracy, for making that happen again. Um, also. Um, there is a Twilight Zone contest going on. Uh, I think it's the last four episodes we did so far. We give out a secret word, and I already have, and you just emailed that back to me, the secret word for each episode at the tragediacinema at gmail.com for your chance to win the Tragedy of Cinema coffee mug that I do have in my possession now. It came in the mail. Um, also, if you want to follow us on the Facebook uh, group, it's the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group. Um, so we have a lot of fun on there too. And by the way, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I had to throw that out there real quick. So Terrence, let's Ruffling go ahead. feathers before we even get started. <laughs> go ahead. Take it away, Terrence. All right. So we have Labyrinth, release date, June 27th, 1986. Uh, this movie had a budget of $25 million. Um, if you can count for inflation, that's $59.3 million today. Uh, U.S. box office, it only made $12.9 million. Uh, that's thirty point six million today. So um, we wanted to try something a little different, uh, where we kind of bring up some of the other movies that it was going against uh, in the same year and also like the same month. So we're looking at some of the same movies that came out the same month as Labyrinth. We got some pretty big movies. We, we got Karate Kid two. Yeah, we go got ahead. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and we have Raw Deal. Uh, and then in the same year. Uh, we, we looked at, you know, what the top box office movie was that year. It was Top Gun, making $176.7 million compared to the $12.9 million this movie made. Uh, right. And also, to put in perspective, the box office for The Dark Crystal, would, uh, it was uh, Two only years yeah, it was $41.4 million. Yep. So, just wanted to throw that out there, too. And uh, uh, just, and to give you a gap of how you know far it was from the top 10, and uh, at number 10, we had... Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off making seventy point one million. Uh, once again, this only making twelve point nine million. So, uh, <laughs> and we looked it up, and this movie fell all the way down. You know, from the the total box office movies yep. earlier, it's all the way down to number, like number sixty eight. Yeah, um, of like one hundred and twenty something. Yeah, like, or was mine wow. was two hundred and one? I was looking at. Oh, was so, it yeah, it was. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but this was a great year for movies to come out. I mean, you named you know, a yeah. lot of good stuff. Crocodile Dundee. A lot of this stuff came out that year. So. Um, it's not shocking that this did so poorly when you have other choices. So. Yeah. Um, I, I also could see sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, puppeteered movies being an acquired taste for some people, um, you know, especially at the time uh, and even now, you know. Um, so moving on, uh, this was directed by Jim Henson, uh, who, if you don't know, Sesame Street, Muppets, uh, they did, you know, all the Muppet movies and stuff. They also Fraggle did Rock. Fraggle Rock, Dark Crystal. Uh, he did the witches, which they just remade. There's a, uh, and it's all CGI now, but you know it's it's on. Um, they just put up the movie on HBO, the remake. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, of course I mentioned Sesame Street. Um, 
Writing credits goes to the story by Dennis Lee and Jim Henson, and the screenplay by Terry Jones, who, interestingly enough, is one of the six members of Monty Python. Um, so that might be some of where you know some of these quirky humor comes from in this movie. Uh, so we got tech specs. We got a runtime of an hour and forty-one minutes, just a little above average, you know, of what you see uh, the hour thirty-minute movie. Um, production company, obviously uh, Henson Associates, and uh, also Lucas uh, Lucasfilm LD, uh, Ltd. Uh, this was distributed by TriStar Pictures, um, which interestingly enough, I forgot about TriStar Pictures. How did you forget about TriStar? Ain't that where the Pegasus comes from? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it was very nostalgic because, you know, we we haven't... I don't think we've covered a TriStar production yet. Um, So just hearing that... I was like, oh, yeah, these guys were a thing. Oh, it's Pegasus from last week's Clash of the Titans. (laughs) So um, I'll have to look into that, and I'll get back to you guys later to see who bought out TriStar. Because obviously, you know, all these companies, you know, that we... of These older movies that we've watched, none of them really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. They've been bought up by, you know, whoever and who probably eventually got bought out by Disney. <laughs> um, so uh, a little bit interesting uh, things about the film as uh, you know from a technical side. Uh, this film took five months to film, which is a lot longer than you know what we usually see. Uh, typically we see like you know the sh- as short as a couple weeks. Some uh, of them are like some, 30 days. Yeah, some of them are like 30 days, you know take a month on average we see about at least a month or two months of filming. Um, for a majority of the movies that we've covered. Uh, this one took five months because it was very complicated to shoot, you know, all the puppets and the animatronics that uh, that were involved. Um, and speaking of, you know, all the stuff that was involved, uh, the early stages of filming, uh, stars Connolly and Bowie found it difficult to interact naturally with the puppets uh, that they shared the scenes with. So uh, Bowie told uh, Movie Line, I had some initial problems with working with Hoggle and the rest because, for one thing, they'd... Uh, uh, what they say doesn't come from their mouths, but from the side of the set or from behind you. So, you know, you're talking to something in front of you, but the voice is coming from somewhere else. It's kind of weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Connolly remarked it was a bit strange uh, working almost exclusively with the puppets on the film. Um, but I think uh, both David Bowie uh, and I got over that, and they just took the challenge and, you know, started working with the puppets. And uh, when the film ended, it wasn't a challenge anymore, and uh, they felt with their characters you know they 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 were in character um one of my one of the most interesting scenes uh that we you know pulled up a little bit of information about is the shaft of hands so when you know when she when she's asking him to go up or down <laughs> uh down and then you know she's falling down the hole and uh you know just a bunch of hands and stuff so so that sequence uh the film rig was roughly about 40 feet high and it required nearly a hundred performers to operate the gray scaly hands uh, uh, for the scene, and uh, she was strapped to a harness uh, while while shooting the scene. And they, they spent time in between between takes, uh, suspended halfway up the shaft. <laughs> so she would just be chilling there between takes until they you know do their next take or anything. And, uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was really cool how they made the faces with all right the and how they're talking. And, you know, what I mean, man, that that that's uh, that's very unique, and that, that was. Definitely one of my favorite scenes, just because of like how intricate it was, and like you know. A and it, I don't think it was CGI either. It was actually it they actually made a, over a hundred latex yeah. hands to do that scene. So there's a hundred people doing that. That's crazy. Um, and then, and then finally, uh, you know, we got to mention the set of the the Goblin City. 
which was built on Stage 6 in uh, Elstree Studios in London. Um, this required the largest panoramic back cloth ever made, and according to production uh, designer Elliot Scott, the biggest challenge he faced was during the building of the forest where Sarah and her party was going through, and um, they're on their way to Jareth's castle. Uh, the film production notes state, the entire forest required 120 truckloads of tree branches, 1,200 turfs of grass, 850 pounds of uh, dried leaves, 133 bags of lichen, and 35 bundles of mossy old man's bread. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you can see where a lot of this budget went for this film. And that was, you know, for these sets, obviously, you know, a lot of the puppets being created and made. Um, there were some very inter uh, interesting and, and um, very detailed puppets in this movie. Um, especially at the end when you get all the different like types of soldiers and there was just like one goblin that was like part gun, part goblin. It gets weird. Um, but yeah, uh, so that, that, that's some of the, you know, some of the, the intricate stage work that they had to go through with this movie and off to my favorite part, the awards. <laughs> so, uh, we have the BAFTA awards, 1987. Uh, they were nominated for the BAFTA award for best special visual effects. Um, for Roy Field, uh, Brian Freud, George Gibbs, and Tony Desterville. Then we have, in 1987, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Uh, once again, nominated Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film and Best Costumes. Uh, then we have a Hugo Award, 1987. They were nominated for Best Dr uh, Dramatic Presentation. So they didn't win anything. They were nominated for a couple. Um, but, you know, I, I think just... As we mentioned before, there was just a lot of big movies going on this year, and the, the year that this came out, uh, that you know, this kind of went to the wayside. Uh, so now we have the synopsis. A 16-year-old girl's wish for her baby brother to be taken away is granted by the Goblin King. Now she has 13 hours to solve a labyrinth to try to get back, get him back. Do you know why she only had 13 hours? Uh, that's how long it was till her parents got back. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going on a little day took 13 hours. No, no, but I mean, do you know why uh, the Goblin King said 13 hours? No, I don't, actually. Okay. On a normal clock, it only goes to 12. On, this, uh, on the clock throughout this entire movie, it, there's 13 uh, faces on the clock. Hmm. Um, so when he starts the clock, but they say that from the uh, 12... To uh, or midnight to basically the thirteenth hour after that, an hour after that is the best time for goblins and demons and all that to be active to oh, basically portal gotcha. through the different yeah, worlds. Yeah. So that was a big key uh, thing for this movie. So the witching hour, so to speak. Right. So off to the cast. I gave Terrence Which the cast this week. Once again, bestowed upon me to read through and struggle through. Right. Well, I, I gave him the cast because, number one, there's only a select few humans in this. And then I gave him a whole slew of the puppet names because we believe that, you know, we don't just want to focus on the human cast of this because I, I believe that the puppeteers deserve credit for a lot Absolutely. of this movie. So we don't want to feel, make anybody feel shortchanged and we want to give credit where credit's due exactly. for all their hard work. And, and they definitely were a, a huge driving force for this movie. Right. Um, so we have the cast. Uh, we have David Bowie as Jareth, the Goblin King, obviously, the ruler of the goblins. Uh, we had Jennifer Connelly as Sarah Williams, a 16-year-old girl who journeys through the labyrinth to find her baby brother. Uh, then we had Toby Frode uh, as Toby Williams, Sarah's baby half-brother. 
Uh, we had Christopher Malcolm as Robert, uh, Sarah and Toby's father, and Shelley Thompson as Irene, Toby's mother and Sarah's stepmother. Uh, then we had Natalie Finland as the Labyrinth Fairies, a, a bunch of deceitful barefoot fairies that reside in the labyrinth. Uh, that was a pretty funny scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have uh, juggler Michael uh, uh, Motion, uh, who performed Jareth's elaborate crystal ball, uh, contact jungling, and manip- manipulations. So, so uh, the whole you know crystal ball manipulation that was done by uh, Michael Motion. Right, uh, and you know how he did that. He actually put his hands through David Bowie, you know, the capo oh, ring. Oh, yeah, yeah, And so that's actually him. You know, if you watch closely, you can you can kind of say, you know, when she's, I think he's in her bedroom or whatever. Yeah. And you see him doing the, the tricks with the, 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 the ball. ball. Yeah, yeah, you can tell, you know, it's he just got black gloves on, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And it's really well done. It is. I actually, yeah, I didn't. And doing it without even seeing, you know what I mean? Cause he's <laughs> yeah, right. David Bowie, you yeah. know, it's funny. When I was watching, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, did, did, did he, like, teach himself to do this for the film? Or, like, how did they pull this off? Uh, turns out, you know, it was like, guy sticking his hands through the costume and doing that <laughs> blind that's pretty amazing um so now we have uh, the voice actors slash uh, puppeteers uh, of all the puppets to which there are many i'm gonna need that part yeah. uh so we have the character hoggle who was voiced by brian henson uh, son of uh, 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 uh why am i blanking on jim names? jim henson see this, <laughs> me and names man i'm terrible with names um uh, the body su- in the bodysuit was uh, Sherry Weiser. Uh, then we have Ludo, you know, the big adorable dude. Um, <laughs> the Terrence of the sh- episode, if you will. <laughs> Bad smell. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Ron uh, Muick, uh, who was puppeteered by Rob Mills. Uh, then we have Sir Dynamis, one of my favorites. <laughs> um, operated by uh, Dave Goals with uh, David Barkray. Um, who probably? Uh, oh nope. There's. Uh, I was like, maybe, maybe uh, the two were handling uh, both him and Ambrosius, but Ambrosius has two separate handlers. And don't forget, so some of them have different voices too. That's true. Um, so, uh, uh, certain Dunamis was voiced by uh, David uh, Sog. Wow, um, <laughs> Sognacy. Bu- I butchered that. I know it. Then we have the the, the worm. <laughs> Which is probably Karen my favorite Pr- character. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, this was voiced by uh, Timothy Batson. I said, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say hello? Well, no. I said, hello. <laughs> well, probably my favorite character so in the good. movie. Um, then we have the wise man who was puppeteered by Frank Oz. and voiced who puppeteered by, Yoda. Uh, yep. And then we uh, voiced by Michael uh, Hornan. And we have the hat. David Goals uh, puppeteered the hat, and uh, another voice by David uh, Sognacy. Wow, I'm gonna have to say his name a lot. Okay, <laughs> we'll just we'll refer to him as David S. So I don't have to butcher his <laughs> name every time. Um, <laughs> we have the drunk lady puppeteered by Karen Prell, uh, voiced by Denise Breyer. Uh, then we have the four guards um, puppeteered by Steve Whitmore, Kevin Clash, Anthony Asbury, and David Goals. Um, these are all part of the, you know, the Henson production um, team. A lot of, a lot of uh, familiar names. And then we have uh, voice actors Anthony Jackson, Douglas Blackwell, David S., and Timothy Bateson. Then we have the right door knocker, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Puppeted by Anthony Asbury and uh, voiced by David Healy. And then we have the left door knocker, uh, David Goals, uh, puppeteered and voice acted by Robert Bates. And, and let me throw this: there. if you haven't seen this movie, uh, the, everything's a puppet or a muppet. And Everything. I, that's why I'm laughing because he's like left door knocker, right door, door knocker. <laughs> so if you if you haven't seen the movie, you don't know why we're laughing, but it's pretty funny too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, make sure you check it out. Go Absolutely, ahead. as you should. Usually, when you know you find out what the episode is, you got to watch the movie first. <laughs> Then we have uh, uh, puppeteers for the different fairies. Uh, we have Fairy One, voiced by Kevin Clash, uh, who was, and then it was operated by uh, David Bradclay and uh, Toby Philpot. And so um, Kevin Clash was actually the uh, the original voice of Elmo. Well, the um, puppeteer did he do the voice? He too? did the voice. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we have Fairy Two by Karen Prell. Uh, with Robert uh, Muick and Ian Tom uh, were the puppeteers, and uh, Charles Angus was uh, Agnes was the voice actor. Mm-hmm. Fairy three, David Goles with Robert Mills and Sherry Amott, uh, and Fairy so Fairy three and Fairy four were both voice acted by Danny John Jules, and uh, Fairy four was operated by Stephen Whitmore and Shell Henson with uh, Karen Bra- uh, Kevin Bradshaw. Then we have Fairy 5, <laughs> the last fairy, operated by Anthony Asbury with Alistair uh, Fullerton and Roland Crewson, uh, voice acted by Richard Bobkin. Then we have Ambrosius. Uh, <laughs> the dog. <laughs> the dog, uh, Sir Dinmus's untrusty Steve. Noble Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, operated by Steve Whitmore and Kevin Clash and uh, voiced by Percy Edwards. Uh, then we have all the goblins. So I'm just going to first name all of the puppeteers and then all the voice actors because they're not uh, discerned by, you know, particular goblin. There's all the goblins. Uh, so we have uh, the puppeteers being uh, Don Austin, uh, Michael Bayless, Martin Brittle, Fiona Bionor Brown, Simon Berkeley, David Bulbeck, Sue Drace, Golf Felix, Trevor Freeborn. Uh, Christine Gavinville, David Greenway, Brian James, Jan King, Ronnie Lee Drew, Terry Lee, Christopher Lith, Karen Mullen, Angie Passmore, Michael Peterson, Nigel Plack- Plaskett, yeah, Plaskett, uh, Judy Pierce, Michael Quinn, Jilly Robick, Robick, yeah, I'm gonna go with Robick, uh, David Rudham, David Scholler. Robin Stevens, Ian Tregongning. Well, that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, Mary Turner, Robert uh, Tyner, Mac Wilson, and Francis Wright. Only stumbled on a couple. <laughs> so well, now you haven't got to the voices yet. <laughs> now we have the voices. Um, we have uh, Michael Atwell, Sean Bennett, uh, Timothy Batson, uh, Douglas Blackwell, John Bathar. Booth Hall, uh, Brian Henson, Anthony Jackson, Peter Manneker, John Muick, Steve Nallen, Jen Ravens, N. Rittle, Carrie Shale, and David S. 
<laughs> Very well done, Terrence Roy. Well done. I don't think Morgan Freeman could have done it any better than what you just did. <laughs> so now let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this movie. Um, my notes, there's so many here, and they're all jumbled. I got a highlight, pin marks everywhere. So um, if we jump around the scenes or we jump around this, the the information, we'll probably go to one scene. Then we'll, As we usually do. But then we'll go back to probably the end of the movie. Then we'll jump back just the way that my notes end up. And I was shuffling around because I was watching the movie again before we started recording. Yeah. So I was writing down notes and everything. So. Terrence, the owl in the title sequence is computer generated. The first attempt at a photorealistic CGI animal character in a feature film. That's interesting to know that since their first time attempting it. You can also tell it was their first time <laughs> attempting it. Hey, but back then, um, and also, but I mean, um, hey, for being the first time, you know, that's a step in the right, right direction. Right. Yeah. Um, by the way, the guy that was doing the juggling, he didn't even have a video screen. You know, sometimes uh, they have video yeah, screens that yeah. you can see what you're doing. It was all just all pure blind. blind, man. I was like, wow. This is very interesting, um, what I figured out, and I don't know if you caught this when you watched the movie. So all the characters that Sarah runs into in the uh, Labyrinth world, the whatever world they call yeah. it, um, they all can come back to her bedroom um, at the beginning of the movie. She has a stuffed animal that looks like Sir Didymus on her dresser, hmm. a doll that looks like Ludo on the shelves next to her door, along with the book Where the Wild Things Are. Um, she, there's a fiery doll on the shelves next to her bed. The bookends um, with goblins uh, look like Hoggle on her dresser. A figurine of Jareth on the right side uh, uh, side of her desk. Um, there's also a scrapbook shown in the newspaper clippings of Sarah's famous actress mom with another man who is David Bowie. <laughs> Um, the dress that she wears in the ballroom, ballroom scene can also be seen uh, in the little miniature doll in our music box. Yeah. And then there's a wooden maze game on her dresser next to her books. It kind of looks like the hedge section of the labyrinth where they yeah. were running around. Uh, there's also a small painting on her wall that depicts a uh, contraption much like the one operated by the cleaners. And then there's a copy of the famous picture by M.C. Escher, which is used in the room where the final confrontation with Jareth occurs. It's which, that room that's all upside down, sideways. And that's one of my looking. favorite scenes, by the way. I think it was very well done. Terrence, um, I did catch at, at the end, though. I didn't catch it in the beginning. But after at the end, I'm like, this feels like a lot of like her imagination and not so much of like she. So I think that's kind of a weird thing. I'm like, wait, did, is she imagining all of this? Because all of these are drawn from objects in her room uh, not to mention a, a play she's part of well Terrence um, why you gotta ruin it that's, that's, that's like a great end comment you're throwing it right here at the beginning well hey they should have watched it by now <laughs> no I'm just saying for your final review of the movie oh no um, I, was just, I was just commenting on like the dance uh, magic which was Terrence was dancing that earlier uh, the dance <laughs> magic scene consisted of over 48 Muppets 52 puppeteers and 8 people in goblin costumes um, Brian Henson revealed that in Inside the Labyrinth special I wonder how they got the kid to be okay and all that. No, well, we'll get to it. I got it in here. So, <laughs> um, yes, Terrence, I know you liked Hoggle so much, but a Huggle, a Hoggle pop uh, puppet got lost on an airplane and remained undiscovered until it turned up in the unclaimed baggage center. How are you going to leave it as an unclaimed baggage? You know I what know, I mean? Right? Um, it was in a, sto- uh, in a store in Scottsboro, Alabama. When a worker opened the crate, he got a scare by the side of the puppet. Is now on display <laughs> in the museum there. That's great. Um, here we go. In the scene where Toby is seated on King Jared's lap, uh, the baby has a fixed and hypnotized look off camera as Jared's murmuring something into his ear. Uh, in fact, Toby screamed so much during the many takes of this scene that something had to be done to keep him quiet. So, fortunately, one of the crew members had a glove puppet named Sooty. For the duration of Jared's speech, David Bowie had the Sooty puppet on one hand out of shot, gently wiggling it to distract Toby. 
The child was entranced, hence the hypnotic stare and the perfect silence. Huh. So David Bowie, he's talking to it as lies, you know. He's sitting there wiggling his <laughs> finger with the other thing. Because, um, by I, the way, I imagine those ter- that some of those puppets would be terrifying for oh, man. A, a child. <laughs> uh, by the way, the, the baby who played Toby was actually the son of Brian Froud, who was the conceptual designer for the movie The Dark Crystal, uh, which was we talked about in another Jim Henson uh, movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Bowie did the voice, the gurgling sound for the baby in the song Magic Dance. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this was also the fir- uh, the final theatrical movie for di- uh, directed by Jim Henson before his death. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Sarah's dog Merlin is also used for Sir Denimus's Mount Ambrosius. <laughs> I thought that was funny, too. Um, here we go. Since Terrence did the cast, um, I will be covering some of the people that could have played the different characters yeah. or uh, audition. Michael Jackson... Prince and Mick Jagger were all considered to play the Goblin King, Jareth. Jim Henson preferred Sting, but his kids convinced him that David Bowie, who had just reached his peak of mainstream popularity with the Let's Dance album, would be the best suited for it. And not only that, but Bowie had decided that he wanted to make a children's movie at the same time, so yeah. it just kind of, you know, he all thought it was a great together. script, and uh, it was funnier and amusing than he thought he could I do. I honestly so. see any of those people in that role. Um, no. Maybe not Prince, <laughs> just just because I don't know uh, like hey well you know when I, with, if Michael right. Jackson was doing it the baby was sitting on his lap he already had the glove in his hand so you know he would be, so. uh, just, just just because you know uh, um, you know Prince was was very associated with you know uh, like you know very adult things like I, I guess I uh, given I wasn't around in the area of Prince but I don't know if he did anything geared towards children you know what I mean so I guess mm-hmm. it would be weird to see him in a kid's movie where like you know Mike, I can see Michael Jackson or like Mick Jagger just because it's Mick Jagger but <laughs> um, but yeah no it's, it's very interesting I think Ozzy Osbourne would have been a funny one too <laughs> just, just for the record oh, um, Ludo the, the, the rig that Ludo had to wear the costume that he had to wear yeah. weighed over a hundred pounds oh jeez um, Henson's like look that's that's too much you gotta make a lighter for the characters inside of it and so they came back with one that was 75 pounds but it was still too heavy for the actors so I inside bet. so they had uh, the two puppeteers Ron Muick and Rob Mills split the performance uh, Hoggle had a lot of people on him uh, consisted of Sherry Weasler inside the suit Four puppeteers led by Brian Henson controlling 18 motors inside the face rig. Wow. Uh, the Henson had a, a mechanical mitt on his right hand where he could control Hoggle's jaw movements and provided the voice. Another puppeteer provided further lip movements with another mitt. The third puppeteer used a fingertip joystick lever to control Hoggle's eyes and eyelids. The fourth used a similar mechanism to animate the eyebrows and a foot pedal to control the skin around Hoggle's eyes. So they said that they had to re- rehearse for weeks together oh, yeah. to make sure everything to be in smooth. sync, right? Like, and I, I can only imagine, you know, what I mean, that would yeah. be so hard. Um, I mean, it just shows how much uh, time and dedication goes into puppeteering, right? Uh, one of the choreographers for this movie was Cheryl McFadden. Do you know who that is? I don't. Well, she's one of the uncredited dancers in the movie, but she also played Doctor Beverly Crusher on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Oh, okay. So, Doctor Beverly Crusher. In uh, honor to his friend uh, Jim Henson, um, producer George Lucas chose not to do any interviews during the release of this movie as to not steal Jim Henson's thunder, who was at the time one of his best friends until his death. So he's like, let, let him get all the credit for this. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Or did Lucas just say, it only made $12 million. I don't want to <laughs> do it. But I wonder if he, if he would have, if it would have been a bigger box office success based upon his 
Star Wars. I, I think I think he still would have took because he this this is you know obviously uh, after Star Wars, so like you know he he's still he, he it's not something he needed to like increase his fame. He was already pretty you know famous, so like you know I I think even if the movie did make more, he would still give his friend a chance in the spotlight. Right. Um, one of the uh, jokes in the that goes through the entire run of this movie is nobody can really get Hoggle's name right. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, Sarah calls him Hogwart at one point. Hogwart originally comes from the famous British humor book The Complete Molesworth by Jeffrey Williams and Ronald Searle. And I wonder if this is where the lady got uh, Hogwarts for the Yeah, I was thinking uh, that Harry too. Potter. I was like, huh, I, I caught that too. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, and this is really cool, this next thing. Uh, there are hidden faces in seven scenes in this movie. It's yeah. really cool. Um, and here they are. Um, basically, they resemble the head that Jareth leans on against before giving Hoggle the peach, which is actually David Bowie's actual face. So the faces can be found if you want to look them up in the upper right-hand corner of the stone maze just after the worm shakes his head and says, if she had kept going doing that way, the very next scene up in the upper right, you'll see it. Uh, it's on the stone uh, to the right of the screen after the rung under Hoggle breaks as he uh, as he watches it fall. The upper left corner of the hedge maze as Hoggle is muttering, "Get through the labyrinth! Get through the labyrinth!" One thing's for sure: the lower right corner of the wall bordering the bog of eternal stench, just after the ledge breaks under Saren Hoggle's f- uh, for the first time. That scene was so silly. During the wide shot of the hedge maze in the middle left of the stony floor, just after the hat says, "It's so stimulating being your hat." And in the forest, as Sir Didymus says, we should reach the castle well before day. So if you want to go back and check those out, it's pretty cool. The movie was loosely based on Outside Over There, a children's picture book written and illustrated by Maurice Sendak in 1981. Uh, her famous book, Where the Wild Things Are, seen in the beginning of this movie in the bedroom. So, Yeah. Um, did you ever read that, Terry? Where the Wild Things Are? Yeah. yeah. Like, I was going to say, you look like you would have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a read in school. Yeah. Do you know what was filming right next door when this movie was being filmed? Legend was being filmed. Uh Next door to Legend, which meant the cast and crew of both movies often intermingled. Hmm. Brian Henson happened to meet and develop a crush on Mia Sarah. Years later, the two met again and were married. Hmm. So, uh, during the Escher room scene, there is a sequence where Jarrett's crystal ball seems to bounce up the stairs into Toby's hand. You know, ding, 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 oh, ding. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, how they got that is they filmed it, uh, they reverse. gave the ball to Toby, they dro- he dropped yeah, it. Yeah, he dropped it, and then they, and they shot the, in reverse. The, the film. Right. That makes sense. According to the Goblin Companion, which there is a book on the description of every goblin in the labyrinth, uh, the junk lady who carries everything on her back is named Agnes. And Terrence, I know you're going to appreciate this. In 1986, two video games based on this movie were released. One in Japan, one in the U.S. And uh, a couple other markets. Labyrinth, the computer game for Apple II and the Commodore 64 was released in the West. It was the first graphic adventure game developed by Lucas film games a company that became lucas arts in the 90s in the game the player only had 13 real-time in-game hours to solve the dangerous labyrinth and thwart jarrah's plan in japan nintendo and henson associates released a different game simply called labyrinth for the famicom system the game was was almost entirely in japanese since it was made exclusively for the japanese market and never got an official western release Although popular English unofficial fan translations do exist. 
The game is an action-adventure role-playing game, like not unlike Zelda, and is also the real-time in-game clicking talk, uh, clock like the Western counterpart. Hmm. So, so I'm actually really interested, and in, um, I didn't know that uh, you know LucasArts before they became LucasArts um, had made a game for this. And typically, I mean, uh, for people who don't know, they they, they LucasArts was known for uh, one of the biggest games that they made. That was you know a, a sort of a puzzle adventure. Uh, game would be uh, the Curse of Monkey Island. That's one of their biggest ones. Um, I mean, there's these incredibly high difficulty games where you have to solve puzzles, and there's many ways to, you know, game over. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very interested to see at least well, and, some, like, and screen not, caps of well, not of only that, but I mean, you're, you're talking game. you're talking about the uh, about the Apple II and the Commodore 64. Yeah, so the Commodore 64, they they made a couple uh, uh, games based off movies. They did Blade Runner. Right. Um, they did, but uh, but I'm saying. As far as like the save progress, if you only had thirteen oh, yeah. real hours of time, did, did you have to play straight through it? Because the save function didn't really come a thing to what Zelda. Uh, save functions were, I would say, for for these types of games, you usually uh, had to punch in a code to get yeah, back to exactly, exactly where you were. Like a, a lot of these older games, you would, you would put in a code, and that would that code would basically kind of resume wherever you were. So um, I'm not I'm not sure about this one. I mean, maybe it was one that they expected you to beat in like 13 flat. Well, I know you, I've been in the same situation. I know you have too, where you get so involved in the game, hours just pass by, you're oh, like, where did the time yeah. go? You know what I mean? And, but today's games, you got to go like 40 to 80 hours to complete. Exactly. And then plus the side missions. So and then, this and then, is probably a lot less toned down back then. You know yeah. what I mean? But, and then you also got to think like some of these games are just, you do have to beat it in that one sitting or else uh, it's kind of almost kind of like a memorization thing. Kind of like um, uh, Dragon's Lair, mm-hmm. uh, the old arcade game. Um, kind of similar in like, you just have to beat it. Or if you if you lose, then you start over from scratch. Yep. You just have to remember the, very the right combinations to all the. Different I remember things. going to the yep. the arcade when they used to have arcades in the malls here called um, Aladdin's Aladdin's Palace, and going in there and playing that stuff it was fantastic. So, well, we talked about this a little earlier. I'll, I'll just uh, comment here again. The thirteenth hour margin has a symbolic meaning. It was not an arbitrary number chosen randomly. Sarah made her wish around midnight. That is the most powerful time when demons, goblins, and other malevolent creatures can cross their dimension and enter the earthly realm. Moreover, according to the folklore, there is a time rift between midnight and 1 o'clock a.m., which is the normal, uh, normally the 13th hour. In order for this time circumvention to be activated, something jar- jarring and horrible must happen just like Sarah's wish. Um, so it just keeps it goes on and explains a lot more stuff, which I'm not going to take the time to read all that. Yeah. So. Helen Bonham Carter, Jane Krokowski, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, Mary Stewart Masterson, uh, Masterson, sorry, Laura Dern, Maddie Corman, Carrie Green, Lily Taylor, Laura Sangiacomo, Ali Sheedy, which we know um, from the movies we've done with her, uh, Mia Sarah, and Marissa Tomei all auditioned for the role of Sarah Williams. Krakowski, Sheedy, and Corman were all highly concerned for the role, but uh, Jennifer Connelly eventually won the role from them. Uh, any any pe- person you would like to see play Sarah there? Um, I would have to see faces with a lot of these names. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, as I've stated before, I'm terrible with names. Um, like especially when it comes when it comes to actors. If you guys haven't told, been able to tell from now on, uh, I'm not the best with names. But I know the like as soon as I see the face, I'm like, oh, okay, I know who they are. And right. I know what they've been in. But uh, as far as this list that you've presented me, uh, I don't. I don't believe I recognize uh, any of the, those particular names. Nobody. Uh, even even uh, uh, you know the the actress who got the role. I feel like I've seen her in a movie. A different movie before. she was in spider-man 
the uh, the uh, far from home or whatever she or the uh, she plays his mom, don't she? She plays Peter Parker or aunt. I think she plays his is aunt. that an older I th- her? I think that's her. Oh yeah. man, okay. Um, she was in a couple other things. I pulled it up here a second ago. If you want to look it up, I, yeah. Um, the original script ended with Sarah punching and kicking Jareth, then watching him shrink down until he becomes a small and sniveling goblin, which I would have liked that, too. Uh, in the beginning of the iconic magic dancing, Toby is seen crying while surrounded by numerous goblins, as Terrence stated. In reality, the baby actor Toby wasn't the least bit scared of any of the puppets and had much on his shoes. They had to wait until he was tired and wanting to nap after filming uh, to, to nap to film the musical number. Um, Toby's name uh, was supposed to be Freddy uh, in the drafts of the story. Uh, the baby's name was changed because the baby Toby would only answer to Toby in react. <laughs> so, hey, Freddy, Freddy, what, what, Toby? Oh, okay. That's funny. Uh, when Sarah, Hoggle, Serdidimus, and Ludo enter the Goblin City, several roaming animals can be seen, one of which is a crawly, a furry shellfish eaten by Skeksis, during the feast in Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. So there's a little bit of throwback. To, yeah. So they must be, Are they in the same universe? Continuity? Could be. Maybe. Maybe setting up their own Muppet universe. So, so I looked up uh, uh, Jennifer Connelly's IMDb. Um, she was a character in Far From Home. Um, she wasn't She wasn't the aunt, though. Uh, oh, okay. she, she played uh, Karen. Um, but she has been in other notable movies, uh, such as Snowpiercer, uh, uh, Requiem of a Dream. Uh, which is a beautiful mind, movie. I believe. She's uh, in. She wasn't a beautiful mind. That's such a good movie. Yes. Every it's funny because it's it's a movie I forget about, but when I when I like hear it mentioned, I'm like, oh yeah, that movie. That movie's crazy. <laughs> um, uh, she was also in. Uh, let's see if any other notable ones. Um, an animation called Nine, uh, which I think is an underrated animation that really doesn't get brought up a lot. Um, Inkheart. That was a good movie too. I like yeah, that was, too. Yeah, uh, the Hulk in, in two thousand three. <laughs> I liked yeah. it too. I guess you know. I mean, uh, and yeah, those those are the big notable movies right. uh, that she's been in. So throughout this movie, there is a black crow. Sarah, uh, when Sarah crosses the bog, it's perch watching her. It's also in the junkyard, and again with a group of friends and her as they enter the Goblin City. So there, once hmm. again, I don't know if it has any symbolism, uh, but there's always a black crow. Uh, it reminds me of. Uh, the, in the Lord of the Rings, where they have the spies among us, you know, oh, the, yeah, the birds, yeah. bats, or whatever. Um, so uh, the colors and numbers on the armored uh, goblin knights were inspired by those of Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's an interesting because I mean because Brian he's the he's the dad of Toby, so he's yeah. probably got those toys laying around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, before setting on the day of casting a rock star as the Goblin King, Jim Henson considered Simon McCorkendale. Michael Gothard and Kevin Klein for the role. <laughs> uh, the large urn that Sarah and Hoggle climb out of um, at the uh, from the Obled or whatever, yeah. uh, it ended up being in Brian Ford's garden. He took it home, put oh, it in geez, his garden. Right. So. <laughs> uh, also, according to Brian Fraud, Kenny Baker. Do you know who Kenny Baker is? What was he in? He's R two D two. Oh yeah! Uh, Once again, I, he played I don't the, see him, man. the machine gun <laughs> goblin. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, Which well, was just a random insert because, like, right. up till now, like, it's just been like spears and swords and whatnot. Cannon. They even had like cannonballs, and then suddenly you have this machine gun goblin. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons why Hoggle was always making groaning noises between lines was to keep his mouth open as much as possible so that actress Sherry Weasler, uh, Weasler was able to look out and see, uh, make sure she was in yeah, the right yeah. spot. Um, this was the first time Jim Henson had worked with a baby in one of his works. 
That makes sense, yeah. Uh, David Bowie has the same haircut that Limehall, the performer of the never-ending story from 1984 theme song, uh, wore. Another fantasy movie with puppets that told a story of loss of innocence. However, Bowie's version is definitely a wig. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's something funny. If you notice in this movie, a lot of times they say, uh, it's a piece of cake. It's a piece yeah, of cake. Yeah, yeah. Well, every time they say it's a piece of cake, something bad's about to happen <laughs> shortly after. <laughs> uh, and when I was when I was highlighting this, uh, the movie was playing, and uh, it's where they go to the door, and she's like, you know, she's trying to figure out which door to go in, and he's like, oh, would you lie yeah. to me? Would you lie to me? And she goes in there, and she's like, see, I figured it out, piece of cake. And piece she opens the door, and she falls. Goes in the wrong one. Uh Here's the here's something interesting. The reason I like the worm so much is because it appears that the worm has double crossed Sarah um, by sending her off on the wrong track. However, this may not necessarily be the case. By going through the entire labyrinth, which the worm basically forced her to do, Sarah met her friends. It was only with much assistance from Ludo, Hoggle, and Sir Didymus um, that Sarah managed to survive the robot guard and massive attack in Goblin City. If she went straight to the castle, she would be most likely injured and chased away by the Goblin army. So the wrong choice may ultimately be the right choice, which is a condor- common underlying theme in this movie. Hmm. So that's one way of looking at it. Uh, some of the, some little goose. Uh, the end of the boom microphone is clearly visible when they almost fall into the bog of stench. Huh. Which I, I, I thought of you, Terrence, when they were crossing the, the bog ascension, they're stepping in, it's making the farting sounds, you know, oh my as God. they go across. I mean, come on. <laughs> Every time you hear a farting sound in a movie, you just crack up no matter what. There's yeah, two things that's always going to make a guy laugh. <laughs> farting sounds and somebody getting racked. Okay. It, it was, it was just two things that's always so going to be funny. silly. Just like, like, I was like, this is the bog, isn't it? And then they... they they pan over to the bog and, <laughs> and you can even hear like like burping and like other like gross noises. It's like oh my god! And you can tell they're they're oh we gotta get out of here. Um, as Sarah runs down the first corridor of the labyrinth, the ribbons on her vest are tied. Then they're hanging loose again. Then they're tied again. So that continuity stuff comes in a lot of movies. Yeah. Uh, the knot which l- keeps Ludo hanging keeps changing. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting. Um, during the, there's a lot of wires visible in this production, even though, you know, they tried to brush it up, but like yeah. during the battles in the streets of the Gama city, um, they can be seen almost on all the evil knights on horseback. Um, they're seen on the wires are seen on hog when he tries to throw the pilot out of the knight armor suit. Uh, when Toby catches the crystal ball on the stairs in the escher room, you can see the wire clipped to his clothes to stop him from falling forward off the <laughs> edge. Uh, you can see him suspended in the ruins of escher and Sarah and Jarrah's uh, final, uh, confrontation. Um, this is one thing that I thought was well. This is, looks really way too fake. Is when you know we're doing the dance baby dance scene, and, and he takes oh, him and he throws yeah. him in the air. You can tell oh, it's a yeah. baby doll. You know, I mean, he throws <laughs> him in the air. You're like, well, okay. And then he comes down, and lands in the puppet. You can tell it's obviously a baby doll. Oh yeah, yeah, for um, sure. And then when Sarah is getting uh, to the labyrinth, the background looks fake because the clouds are not moving. And I thought when I, when That's when true. we first started this, you know, and he opened the, her bedroom window or whatever it is, the the, the patio doors or whatever. Yeah. And you look at, and I was like, man, this just looks so fake. I mean, this looks really yeah. terrible. And I don't I, know I if I'm going to like one, this. One movie. of the scenes that 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 almost kind of like took me out of it, in lieu of like you know, you can tell it's you know a, a fake backdrop or whatnot, is when she's um. Uh, she's getting harassed by those like 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 little creatures that take off their heads and they're like right. let's take off her head and then like um like that whole scene you can tell is like green screen but it just it just felt well, so even off because everything trans- else felt- even one of them's transparent you know what yeah. I mean exactly and like all of them like all the other scenes are, are are on sets except for this one this one's on a green screen mostly um so it just it just felt weird and out of place compared to the rest of the movie and I think because the movie is mostly done on sets and stages that were just carefully crafted when they do decide to do this green screen um besides there's one other time they use the green screen and that's like at the very end 
but they also use that dreamy, hazy kind of filter right. to like kind of filter that out. So you can't really tell as much. Well, but. And also what I didn't understand is at the end of the movie when she's in her bedroom, you know, and she's like, I still need you guys or whatever. She looks in the mirror and says, and yeah. they turn around, it's a big party. I think some of those creatures that lose their head are in there. And I'm like, yeah, a couple of little goblins. And I was like, why are they in here? They just tried to kill you. Now, could it be that the Goblin King had him under his spell and now that... He's dead. She is now the leader of the Goblin Kingdom, the Goblin yeah. Queen, if you will. Um, I, don't <laughs> I was know. thinking the same thing. It was and also, like- I think, if I remember right, the cap that she puts on to tell Toby the story at the beginning of the movie is like that red and white striped hat, like the little knit cap. Yeah. And that's also uh, what the outfit he's wearing in the with uh, David Bowie when he's got him. He's in, he's in that oh, red and white yeah, stripe. So yeah. I thought maybe I didn't see any notes about that, but I think it might be part of the same. It might be a parallel kind right. of thing. So Terrence... Go ahead and tell me your thoughts and feelings on this movie. So, it was a good one-time watch for me. Like, I, I, I did enjoy it, and I do like David Bowie, so I enjoyed the songs. Um, and plus, it's always fun just hearing David Bowie songs. And they're catchy. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I mean, besides that, I, I feel uh, this movie made me want to watch other Jim Henson works uh, more than I was wanting to watch this particular movie. So, like, I'm watching this, I'm like, man, I really want to go back and watch Dark Crystal. I haven't seen that in forever. Um, and even before, you know, we were doing, uh, started this episode, we were like, oh, man, never-ending story. We got to get that done sooner or later, because you know, that's another really good movie. Um, and it uses, you know, puppeteers and stuff. And, and so... Uh, I feel like what this movie did is I has been done and better already and then proceeds to be done better by movies preceding it. Um, you know, the whole sort of whimsical, uh, you know, kid ends up in imaginary land, learns a lesson and comes back, which uh, I, I kind of understand now, like going through the notes and reading it. But I, I guess it wasn't clear, exactly clear on what the message was or what, what lesson she had to learn. Because, uh, you know, in the beginning, you, you can tell... Um, uh, she's not completely okay with, uh, I didn't understand, you know, her not being okay with the, you know, the whole, like, you know, not accepting her stepmother, I suppose. Um, and then her, you know, her father's relationship with the stepmother and, you know, having, uh, the stepbrother that she now has to take care of and feeling left out, I suppose. Um, but I, I guess I was trying to figure out what lesson she had to learn and what lesson she did learn by the end. Um... So, so I guess maybe because that message didn't come clear, and maybe because I, I haven't, you know, uh, taken time to like sit down and analyze it. But once again, this is like a kids' movie, and typically the messages are should be pretty, you know, clear cut of like, hey, this kid's doing this wrong, and this is what the kid learned, and now, you know, blah blah blah. So, I mean, I mean, what's what's your takeaway on that? Because I, I do want to maybe I missed something, and then maybe you can explain. Or, All right, now, now, or, now here's here's a couple of uh, thoughts I was having because um, I watched this like three times. Yeah. Number one, does it ever say what happened to her mom, her real mom? It doesn't. No, it okay. never states so, what happened to her real number mom. Number one, she could have mommy issues. I'm That's just true. saying. Okay. Yeah. Number two, here's here's the here's where I go with this, uh, just from everything from the start of the movie to the end of the movie. And I'm going to propose this. I personally believe that it was all a dream. And the reason I say that is because at the beginning when she's in the um, the four, the she's reading out of the labyrinth book she has. Yeah. I think she's a bookworm. And she's reading that, you know, she's out there reciting, give me the baby bag, you have no power over me. And she's like, oh, yeah. I always forget that line, you know. And then her stepmom yells for her, or she's like, it's almost 7 o'clock, and she runs back home. Yep. 
and and she and her dad comes out. She's like, "Hey, you need to watch your brother. He's already upstairs or whatever." And I, what I surmise to you is, this, when she went to her bedroom, I think because I think she's laying down and the baby's crying. You know what I mean? And she, she's like, "Make him stop. You know, just stop." She yeah, doesn't do yeah. one story. I think that the baby was already asleep from when her parents left because he's the dad had already put him down. And I think that when she went up to her bedroom, you know, and, and she just laid down, I think she was so exhausted that she she fell asleep and. Everything that's in her room, um, all you, you see, all the statues, all the, the 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 boxes, the games, the books. Yeah. And she had that little red labyrinth book. She had the the Goblin King statue on her uh, dresser and all that. I think that she was so enamored with the book because sometimes some people love the book better than the movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think she had loved that book so much that she was memorizing that book because you can tell or play whatever it was. Yeah. And I think that she she was so exhausted that she laid down. And she fell asleep, daydreamed, whatever you will. And I think this was all a figment of her imagination about um, overcoming the, uh, or actually living the book out in her in her dream. Yeah. Um, because basically, when she wakes up, she goes out there, and uh, the it's only been a few minutes. Yeah. Or uh, it's not even twelve yet. You know yeah. what I mean? And and I think. Um, just because of everything that was in her room and based around her surroundings, I think it all came upon her and into and, like this like and, dream, right? Like um, a dream room. Now, am I saying that's right? No, but I mean that's yeah. what I'm taking away from it because, and I think the, the the main thing after that is when she's up in her room and she's glad to be back home. That's when I think she actually wakes up. Yeah, and she puts all the stuff away. She takes the the ballerina dress, you know, or yeah. the, the the little miniature. What do you call it? Uh, thing that plays music, music box, box and she yeah. puts it in her drawer she takes the picture of david bowie and her is that her mom or stepmom yeah puts it in the drawer uh you know she takes a lot of the stuff and then she gives her uh she goes and sees toby who's laying in his bed lancelot says i want you to have him now you know what i mean because she was really upset that one of her teddy oh, yeah. bears was missing and, and this is actually where i want to interject um and and i like i said i think hearing part of the, the notes you were reading um kind of brought it into perspective and and that the key thing being the 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 loss of innocence of like, you know, she was probably at least, you know, based off what we've seen, um, you know, an only child up to this point, you know, being spoiled and, you know, getting all the things she wants and stuff and, and really kind of uh, uh, probably taking, uh, you know, it, it seems that, you know, she's, you know, she's a bookworm. She, she's, you know, typically reading books uh, on her by herself. Um and, and, and you know, uh, uh, always like you know, with her toys and whatnot. And then so you have that scene where she's with the uh, the the junk you know right. ladies, and then um, they're they're trying to enamor her with all these things that used to enamor her. Uh, but now the loss of innocence being like she has to put sort of some of her childish ways aside because now she has to take care of a baby brother, which she didn't expect to you know get it just came out of nowhere with the stepmother and so um you know they're trying to enamor her with toys when she loses her memory and then at first she's like oh yeah all this stuff and then she's like wait and then she starts you know memorizing the 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 words in the book uh that that line in the book that she's always repeating and then she remembers oh yeah i have to save toby and to which she goes this is all junk like i right. like you know what matters is my new family and i i think that would be the the lesson that she learned from this is like you know okay i have to be accepting of my new family um and i, I have to you know embrace the, the fact that i'm a, a bigger sister um but i think that where i kind of get confused on if that is the message is usually the message is highlighted at the end where i feel like the end highlight message of the movie is a little far from what it was trying to tell which is like oh it's okay to rely on your friends and stuff like that. But at no point in the movie was 
did she have friends that she like pushed away or anything? So it was, you get what I'm saying? Well, I understand that too, but let's, let's make two things perfectly clear. Number one, her stepmom was a character herself because she says, look, we never go out. She's like, you go out every weekend. Yeah. So therefore I think the stepmom is shying away from her responsibilities too, that, Hey, you got two kids to take care of for not just one. Yeah. Uh, you need to accept her for who she is and help, help her to, you know, help teach her, you know, the way she should be, why we do things the way yeah, we do. Yeah. And maybe she's mad because maybe her dad left her mom for her, don't know that's that's under the bridge but the end scene i would like to talk about is is when she looks in the mirror and she's like uh well we'll be here uh, i think it's Hago says well we'll be here yeah. if you need us and she's like well i do need you you know and she turns around nobody's there and then turns around again and it's a big Everybody's party in there. her room yeah so my question is her mom and dad had just got home and he, they're yelling for her and then now she's throwing this big party in her room so if, if her mom and dad would have came up there would they have seen all them, these or would they have just seen her or, jumping around on the bed by herself and think that she needs to be committed I to a mental institute? That's the thing the I was getting thing, to, and it was very confusing. Like the the end really didn't. I feel I feel that's that's where this movie sort of fails for me. Is like I, I feel like the end didn't capitalize on a message exactly, which like typically movies like this do. I mean, you you look at uh, and you know I'm not going to completely get into them because these are movies we'll probably cover but like you know the end of never ending story it capitalizes on a, a, a message the, the end of dark crystal capitalizes on a message the end of uh, uh, something that does very similar it comes years later I believe it came out in like 94 but page master mm-hmm. you know kid gets sucked into the books he, he there's uh, the, there's a thing that he needs to work on. He learns a message. The message is just capitalized and show that, hey, there's this growth. And you know exactly what the message is by the end of the movie. This movie I watched, I'm seeing messages, but nothing's really capitalized at the end. And I'm not really sure what it's trying to tell me. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen a different ending to this movie. Um I understand why they did what they did, but just to leave it there, maybe have her dad pop in the door and just, you know, catch her dancing or something like, oh, or then, just see and it. then just run up and give him a big hug, you know, yeah. or give her stepmom a hug or something. Um, but I would have loved just to something. see maybe something on on the uh, maybe seen uh, Ludo and all of them in the labyrinth world, whatever world it was yeah. called. Maybe see them acting a little different too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, you know, just Anything something just like- seemed seemed off about the ending more, and it, i don't know if it was because it was behind in production or whatever uh, yeah. that's a lot of puppets on that bedroom too scene like i wonder um, if they wrote something different for this and they're like well we have to settle on this because we're running out of time like who knows they could um, um, but but overall it was an okay movie i mean it's not groundbreaking for me it's not one of my favorites i'd rather watch the muppet movie uh, yeah. personally or dark crystal um but it was okay i mean never ending story and all these other ones have come out before this and i think it set the bar so high for me that this one was just meh. it was okay that's like i said earlier that when i was watching this and something i didn't mention is uh just you know due to having to do a bunch of other stuff um i started i had to i watched this movie in three different segments uh and even from like the beginning it didn't exactly like pull me in like i don't know why but you know typically i, I like movies like these uh, like all the other aforementioned movies i'm very excited to rewatch eventually but uh you know when i'm watching this movie and this was a movie that you know i had uh, brought up because i was like i haven't seen labyrinth and i've heard a lot of good things about it so you know we should we should cover it and so uh you know here we are and we've covered it and uh it just left me wanting to watch those other movies mm-hmm. um but it, it, yeah it didn't draw me in it had some fun scenes i had favorite characters uh, i think sir sir Dynamis was was hilarious <laughs> easily one of my favorites um and i do like sort of the story progression that some of these characters go through i think hoggle shows a lot of character growth um where his message is clear you know what i mean like you know uh, uh he's 
He's got sort of this cowardly lion complex, and he overcomes it for the power of friendship. And right? that's what exactly I was getting ready to say to you is I, I see a lot of similarities to this in the Wizard of Oz, which yep. the Wizard of Oz book is in her bedroom, it is. Um, yeah. because you know she goes to a faraway thing, has three friends that help her along the way, exactly. and I thought, man, this is such, I did see that sort of parallel because the, yeah, the things that were in her room are the things that appeared just like in Wizard of Oz that the, her farm friends or you know and all them are in the, uh, Oz, yep. um, and that's what I drew to conclusion. So like I said, it was an okay movie. Uh, the puppeteering is fantastic. I much prefer claymation and Muppets and puppets compared to CGI. That's just me. I think it takes a lot more talent and a lot more work to do that. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of movies typically lean towards CGI, just because it's easier versus, or in some cases, cheaper. Um, you know, especially like time time scale wise. Because uh, imagine you can probably cut easily cut this movie in like half production wise just if, if they did you know if it was made today and they did CJ instead of puppeteering like obviously uh, it would take not even like half the time but uh, I, I think because you know they go through the effort of you know the puppeteering and stuff and, and, and just really skillful talented mm-hmm. uh, production uh, workers I mean besides all the story and everything the movie does look great mm-hmm. like i always enjoy seeing puppeteering and just the the intricate animatronics of these uh, of these things and these hand built sets uh, these very intricate settings, like the, uh, the the tunnel she falls through, that was that the was super obelette, cool. Yeah, or the hands, you mean? yeah, yeah, and and the um, when she's chasing the Goblin King through the MC Escher painting, pretty much like that was super cool. Just you know, her getting lost in this, you know, the MC Escher, you know, uh, esque like labyrinth kind of place, and him just navigating it like nothing, and he's upside down, and then he's sideways, and he's just like you know doing all these crazy things. That was really cool. So there were highlights to this movies that I did enjoy. There were some, you know, parts where I found myself laughing, especially with Sir Denimus. Um But you know, the the, the biggest things that strayed me away from it was um, I wasn't sure where the main what the what the main character was going through uh, right at the get go. Like after thinking about it, I'm like, okay, I understand mm-hmm. why she was acting how she was. But at the time, uh, when I first started watching, I'm like, I'm not really sure what her problem is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and and I think there's so much underlying issues with her that they don't share the entire thing with her, like her mom, yeah. her dad. What's the relationship with her stepmom? Um, you know, she loves her brother, um, but or stepbrother. Um, yeah. Did that ever make it clear if it was her brother or stepbrother? I, I think she just think said her brother. I yeah. See, I'm not see? sure. It's, I mean, it's not very clear. So um, a lot of a lot of good things. Like I said, I just like to see the ending different. Um, yeah. But the last thing we need to say is sadly. David Bowie, the Goblin King, did die January 10th, 2016 of liver cancer. Um, The sad thing is it was just two days after his uh, release of his 25th studio album, Black Star, which uh, coincided on his 69th birthday. So R.I.P. Goblin King. Um, So with that being said, this episode went a little bit longer than we intended, but you know, uh, once we get on a roll, we got to make sure we get everything out there. Oh, we yeah, get out. So, Terrence, any final thoughts, anything you want to throw out there? Um, I am curious, uh, you know, post on our – rather email us or, or post on our uh, the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group on Facebook. Uh, just, you know, what are your thoughts on this movie? And uh, maybe maybe there's some messages that uh, both me and Jimbo didn't see that like, hey, this is my favorite movie and this is what it's trying to say. Like, you know, uh, like – highlight some of those things for me and may it might change my mind on it but like i'm gonna stand where i stand on the movie for now um but i 
am curious into what other people think. Maybe there's something that we missed. Um, and in this case, I am particularly interested and curious. All right. There you have it. Um, if you guys haven't left us a review yet on the Apple Podcast or iTunes, go ahead and leave us there. Um, we do I'm love sorry. reading yeah, this. Yeah, we'll read them on the air like we did uh, last episode with Clash of the Titans. Um, don't forget, next week will be Ghostbusters. Yep. Uh, who are you going to call, Terrence? Ghostbusters. Well, hopefully I can call you to get over here. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, I forgot. <laughs> so um, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close. And that's a wrap. And, and cut. cut.